Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise will become wise. I'm Dan Chapa, and Turton Fan and I have been friends for many years, and we've learned a lot from each other, including how to debate opposing views while loving the person. We share a foundation in the essentials of the Christian faith in a love of God in His Word. Here we'll dive deep into the Bible and present both Calvinism and Arminianism and the precise points of disconcurrence. Hopefully the contrast will bring you clarity. Welcome to Disconcurring Theo Amigos. Hi, Turton fan. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Yeah, it's nice to see you again. Likewise. Cool. So we actually had some feedback uh, from our last discussion on John chapter 6. So I'll give a real quick recap of where we landed on that discussion, and then we'll play a, a quick uh, video clip. So just remember to remember John 6, it's, it starts with the bread of life discourse, and it covers total inability from man's side to believe the gospel without Christ, uh, without the fathers drawing people to the son and without that they're unable to come or to believe in the son and it's not just a lack of opportunity but it's actual inability on the side of the person so we agreed there um, where we disagreed is probably on the um, monergism versus synergism or, or um, irresistible grace versus resistible grace is the drawing process resistible or is it not does drawing guarantee that the person will come or not is the drawing the same as the fa uh, father giving people to the son and then we probably also uh, disconcurred on what exactly the giving of the people t uh, from the father to the son is and is it related to election or is it something where basically uh, through prevenient grace the father has prepared people for um, Christ Jesus so we disagreed on on those specific points um, and we had a very brief discussion, and I remember you brought up the point of John six forty six, and just to set this up again, so let's, let's I'm going to read uh, forty four through forty six. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up in the last day. It's written in the prophets; they will all be taught by God. Everyone that has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And I remember you brought up 46, and I was quickly like, well, I think that's moving into different areas, different topics. Um, but we actually had a response to our conversation from David Lewis uh, from uh, Apologetics from the Attic, who runs a great channel, by the way. I highly recommend it. It's really, really cool. He, uh, I like his approach. He digs deep into Scripture, and he's um, he opposes... Um, provisionism and, and, and advocates for Calvinism in general and, um, and, and solid theology, which is good stuff. So uh, I appreciate David Lewis. So I, I just wanted to play this uh, clip, and I think it's a good addition to the discussion that we already had on John 6, not to um, recover the same ground, but to cover some new ground. So with that said, is that okay? Uh, can I go ahead and just uh, start sharing my screen here? Go for it. Okay. Just a second. Okay. Um, let me know if you can hear that, or can you can you see the screen? Okay. I see it. Okay. I'm gonna start playing here, and we'll watch maybe about a two minute uh, section, two or three minute section here. The Father overcomes by the drawing. Um, it is taught in John six forty four. 
But then what he did is he went to John 6.45. And that's where we left off on part one. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught of God, taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Dan's doing what I've heard many people try to do with John. So yes, John 6.44 says that. But then John 6.45 explains that the ones who are drawn are the ones who have already previously done something else apart from this particular drawing. This is what I think they're saying. So this drawing here, so the ones the Father draws, are ones who have already taken another action previous to this drawing. Namely, they have heard and learned from the Father. Okay? So... The argument is, well, yes, we agree that they're drawn, but the drawn ones are the heard, the ones hearing and learning. They're the taught ones. They're the taught ones. Now, several lines of argumentation that I think some of them are to jump out of this text and go into the Old Testament and look at this quote, but another one is just the simple go to the next verse. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now, I think John 6.46, and um, this wasn't brought up on the show. If I was on the show, I would have I asked Dan about John 6.46. Okay, so if you're going to say in John 6.45, there's, there's this idea that, well, there's people that are taught by the Father, not the Son, but the Father, and because they learned and heard from the Father, namely like faithful Jews or something like that, then they come to the Son. They're drawn because they were previously, um, they belong to the Father, and the Father gives them to the Son because they had heard and learned from the Father. But I think Jesus puts an axe to that in verse 46. Why? Well, because he's identifying himself with the Father. So even those who've heard and learned from the Father, guess what? They're also the ones given to the Son even back then. So he, he brings up, I'm not saying that if you've learned and heard from the Father that you have some separate access to God. No, there's only one access to the Father. There's only been one access to the Father, and it's the Son. So I'm going to pull out my... So I wrote very extensively on John 6. I have three... Okay, I'll stop it there. Um, okay, so... I guess just to recap his argument, and it's something we, we just briefly touched on, and I just kind of blew right by it last time. It's John 6, 46. So to recap my position, it's that the Father prepares people for the Son, that he gets them ready to believe in the Son. And that's described in, in terms of drawing, but it's also described in terms of teaching in verse 45. It's written in the Prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone that has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Um, and so my, my, my argument, my position would be that the teaching and learning process is synergistic, that the, the teacher has to put an effort, but so does the student. And if the student doesn't, then they don't learn. And um, it could be the case that the teacher is up there teaching and explaining things, and the student just isn't picking it up because they're, you know, just not focused the way they should or in, in biblical terms or, you know, closing their ears or blinding themselves or that sort of thing. So 
that's roughly my position. And the way I understood David's argument is, well, I'm putting too big of a wedge between the father and the son. And it, I, I, and he's rightly pointing out that part of the, the point of the passage is that the father and the son are united in purpose in working together for salvation. Um, so with that said, I guess, um, what did you make of, of David's argument, if anything? And um, do you think it's... Uh, do you think he's heading in the right direction? Would you agree with, with some of what he said there? Uh, well, I guess my first comment would be to congratulate him on being one of our listeners. This It's an elite group right now. Uh, <laughs> Super that elite. Would be, that would be one, one, of my initial, one of my initial comments. I do appreciate that. In all sincerity, I do appreciate that someone's taking the time to listen and, and pay attention and and try to figure it out, uh, you know, kind of, especially the fact that he's uh, focusing on a position that he disagrees with, as well as, you know, uh, you know, presumably hearing what I say as well, but focusing on on the position he doesn't agree with. And I think that's something that uh, I would encourage people, you know, from my side of these discussions to be doing is to be hearing what you have to say, and, and also to come up with their own thoughts and uh, and see what the scriptures teach, and, I, and so I, exactly, I think that he's on the right path in that in that regard. Uh, I do think that the that six forty five discussion about it's written in the prophets, they will uh, be taught of God, is an, an explanation of the uh, the drawing. So I don't think he's wrong about that, uh, and. I, I think, but I could be wrong, that he has misunderstood your argument as being that the Father only draws people who have prepared themselves by uh, prevenient grace, whereas I think you were actually saying that the Father draws a lot of people, but you, you draw like pull, not, not like drag, so that there's, a, you know, if, they, if they're pulled by the Father, they may or may not go along with it and, and, uh, and learn. Uh, but so you would say that the people who are who hear who hear and learn are a subset of those who are drawn, not that uh, they are a subset of all people. And then the father draws all the ones that are that hear and learn. Uh, so I think I'm not sure, but I think he might have misunderstood your argument. But uh, I'm not sure about that. But and then I do think that it's that John six forty six is an important. Uh, it's an important aside. So I view it as a parenthetical comment, not that any man has seen the Father, uh, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. That seems to be a parenthetical comment. I was kind of, I'm not sure I fully worked out in my own mind how I understand this in its relationship to 45 and in its relationship to 44. So 45 uh, I think is an explanation related to 44. And I think we sort of agree on that, although we take it in different directions. And, but then 46, that's, I think the point of 46 is learning of the father 
is learning of Christ. So I think that's kind of rules out. There's a kind of, I would say, it's a position that I've heard sometimes from dispensational thinkers, not necessarily from you, uh, but I've heard this idea that there, uh, and I may have heard of something like this in one of the clips that I've heard from Leighton Flowers. I think I mentioned before, I don't regularly listen to his show and I probably heard uh, really only full episodes of his show if you were on the show, <laughs> but the, and I'm not even sure I heard the whole episode. I just heard the part you were on, but it, it may have been the whole episode. Anyway, the point is I'm not a regular listener, but I think I've heard him say something uh, something to the effect of the idea that there's these people who he viewed as sort of pre-believers, like believers in sort of in Judaism, but not yet in Christ that are, that are in uh, the category of uh, the 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 man that Peter uh, brought to faith after receiving the vision in Simon the Tanner's house. So that that uh, that man was said to kind of believe in God and to be a worshiper, a righteous man, but then uh, he hadn't yet believed on Christ because he hadn't been he hadn't heard of Christ yet. And then Peter preached Christ to him and he believed. And so he tries to put him in a separate category. If you try to apply those categories to this text, I think that that does create a problem. So I think for, I don't think that that applies to your position. I could be wrong, but uh, but I think if you're saying that if you're drawing a hard line of distinction between people who have learned of the Father and people who have learned of Jesus, I think that is a problem, because that that's the point of six forty six is is not that nobody's getting this directly from the Father. They're getting it from Jesus who was sent by the Father. Yeah, so, okay, so a, cu a couple thoughts. Actually, so first, just on the text itself, the way I take this. So to say this as, 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 as nicely as I can, there's a very simple explanation, and then there's an extremely complicated explanation. And maybe both are true at the same time, but uh, so... When it says they they will be taught of God, it's written in the prophets, they will be taught of God. We could go into the Old Testament context, find it, find out, and have hours and hours of discussion about it. Because it seems to me when I look at those texts, it is getting into the what I would call the millennium um, from a dispensational standpoint. But now we're going to have disagreements on eschatology and how exactly th that works, especially with Christ's first mission, you know, when he came to die on the cross and his uh, second mission when he returns as, uh, um, in the millennial kingdom. So, you know, I'm kind of wanting to set that aside a bit and just stick, stick with the, the very simple point where I think we could agree, which is the Father teaches people about Christ, the Father prepares people for Christ, um, which I would assume that we would agree there. And 46 has a similar, very simple meaning, that the Father isn't a visible teacher like your, you know, math teacher from high school. Um, it's he teaches in the heart. So don't expect the Father to teach you physically in person. Not that anyone has seen the Father, but Christ has, right? 
And so the Christ is communicating things that he's um, experienced directly from the Father um, to us, but we shouldn't expect to uh, see Christ as a physical teacher. And I think that's the simple point that he's making. Um, the And I would not drive a a hard and fast wedge between the father and the son and any certainly that's that's part of the point is that they're working together but experientially i think it is true that we learn the law and our sinfulness first and then after that then we hear about jesus christ and how he can save us um, from our sins and so I think that's probably the, the direction I would take it. And I, and I suspect he wouldn't disagree with that. So anyways, that's, that's my uh, two cents from, uh, from the tech standpoint. All right. Okay. Uh, so you want to dig into Ephesians chapter 2? I would, that sounds great. All righty. That all depends on my ability to dispel Ephesians. Okay. So while you're while you're typing that in, uh, in terms of how we proceed today, uh, I think we, you know, in our pre pre chat we discussed. You you may provide some explanation first. If it's okay with you. I'll just jump in as you go through. When I come to a point where I feel like there's enough things that I disagree with, or enough things where I have another perspective or another uh, point I want to make, I'll jump in and and uh, and interrupt if that's okay with you. That's fine. That's actually great. And um, so and what I'll do is take it a chunk at a time. So I'll go maybe like three verses, talk about the three verses, um, and then maybe we go back and forth. Anyway, so let's do that. Okay, right. so uh, starting with Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Actually, so I should start with a bigger picture from my perspective. So I suspect we're going to have a lot more concurrence and disconcurrence here. I could be wrong, but I suspect. And the reason why are two things. One, I am not a provisionist. I'm an Arminian, therefore I hold to total depravity. And I think this is talking about depravity, if not total depravity. I hold to original sin um, in the classic sense. And, um, and then I also think that faith is a gift of God in a very significant way. Um, now, perhaps I don't uh, view that quite the same. It doesn't cash out for me the same way it might cash out for Calvinists, but uh, um, but I do. Th so there's there's a good possibility that we'll agree on a lot of stuff, um, but there's probably some details that we need to to trudge through. So with that said, um, Ephesians two, um, I'll just go with one through three here to begin with. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in once in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of my mankind. Um, so this this paints a very um, bleak uh, picture. So for starters, let's let's start, let's start with who this is about. Um, so the you is the Ephesian church. They were the Gentile community um, that was established by Paul on his missionary journeys. So um, you know they were the ones that were said to be dead in trespasses and sins. But let's follow these um, these references um, in verse three. Among whom we. So he switched from you to we. And so now it's got Paul plus, uh, so it's basically the Jewish Christians that Paul was with, plus um, the, uh, 
Gentile church in Ephesus, and then it, it expands it out like the rest of mankind, which is basically everybody else. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You said something about Jewish Christians. What, what was that from? Um, the we. So among, okay, so, so, so what I'm doing is contrasting verse 2 to verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 1 to verse 3. Verse 1 starts with, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. So that's Paul talking about the Ephesian church. So the you is the Ephesian church. The we is the Jewish Christians that Paul was with um, when he was writing this letter. Where do you get that from, that he was with Jewish Christians when he was writing the letter? uh, I think it's in the the signature, isn't it? It, it, He was with um, Timothy and maybe some others. And then Timothy ended up going to the church in Ephesus. Um, But Paul was in prison at this time. But certainly the we is going to include Paul. uh, um, And then the broader point is the rest like the rest of mankind so this point about the depravity of man is is universal it's um it's a it, there's a sin problem across all of mankind um christ himself accepted so i'm not sure if this changes anything but the you know in the, in the opening in chapter one of ephesians i didn't see anything about who he's with. In Ephesians 6.20, he mentions his bonds, which means which means this is presumably in his uh, on his journey to Rome. Uh, when he would have probably he wasn't particularly surrounded by a lot of people. He mentions uh, Tychicus, but Tychicus doesn't sound like a Jewish name at all. Uh, Tychicus sounds Roman. I'm not sure what's the original Greek word there, tikikos, but that also doesn't sound Jewish to me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but anyway, maybe that's a a, uh, a gnat that I'm straining at here. Well, I think that um, who, whoever the we is, it's going to include Paul. And yes, for sure. It, yeah. And it's going to include his Ephesian audience. And then yes. he broadens it out to the rest of mankind. So... We all so it ends up a, including the Jewish Christians in any of it. Yeah, they get in there. They, in the, yeah, they're... Uh, um, yeah. So, okay. Even as others, yeah. Right. So, all right. So now the first phrase where there's been some controversy is, you know, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you can see that in verse 2. Or, I'm sorry. I keep saying that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then you see it also in verse 5. Even when we were dead in tre- trespasses and um, we, we were made alive together with Christ. So... The question that usually comes up about this dead in sins is, well, just how dead are we? Uh, it might be the best way to say it. And you can usually see like memes of like people preaching the, a, uh, a tombstone or a um, uh, where, where Calvinists often go with this. And I don't know if you do, but um, is the Lazarus. And they think of Lazarus as a picture of um, regeneration or regeneration maybe happening before faith or that sort of thing. Um, and I think there's there's some truth to that, but I think it's a little bit imprecise. And so I'll make this argument here, even though I'm jumping quite a little bit ahead, but not too far ahead. In verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, um, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the solution for this deadness is in Christ, in our, in our union with Christ, 
And we can see, especially from chapter 1, that that union with Christ happens through the power of the Holy Spirit when we're resurrected with him. In a spiritual sense, we're resurrected with him. And you can also see it, um, you know, overall, what is it that unites us to Christ in Paul's theology? And he's certainly going to talk about that in terms of justification by faith alone, but more specifically, um, baptism or more sp what, what baptism symbolizes um, you'll see that in Romans chapter 6. So the solution for this deadness, I can't think of it as a, a pre-faith thing. I think of it as a post-faith thing. In, it's an in-Christ thing, and no one is in Christ apart from faith. So I look at verse 8, uh, Morris's solution to this deadness, um, rather than a pre-faith regeneration. So that's my first thought, um, where we possibly would have a disconcurrence. But what do you think about this uh, deadness and trespasses and sins? Um, I, yeah, I probably we probably do have some disconcurrence there. I would start. Um, I would I would start by um, by pointing out, you know, in terms of the background context, if if you look at the end of chapter one, the, the discussion is. Uh, it's a long, there's this really long preamble of the letter uh, in which uh, Paul is saying that he's writing this to the saints which are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then it, there's this very long blessing. And, and the in the blessing, there's all this discussion, and he kind of goes into a theological discourse inside the blessing. And so the part right before, you know, two starts is uh, that Christ is above every principality and power and might and dominion. And uh, he has put all things under his feet and given him to the head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And then, uh, then comes this, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked. So I would say, you know, obviously he's writing now to people who, uh, who are now believers, but formerly weren't, including himself, including basically everyone here. Uh, and he doesn't, I don't know if it says specifically everyone in, in verse three, but even as others, I think the implication is everyone. So, and and we find that elsewhere, like in Romans, maybe we'll see more, more explicitly that it's everyone. But I think one interesting thing from the Calvinism standpoint is in verse two, you notice that all there's kind of, it's, you know, it's, these are the walking dead. They are in. They were dead, but they're also walking. They were walk. They walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Uh, and then in verse three, we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But so one of the points from the Calvinist side is that there's an explanation for why these people were doing what they were doing, which is they were doing what they wanted to do. But what they wanted to do was something sinful and evil, and that's how they were living their lives. So it's not there, you know, there is a death metaphor for sure, but it's also, it's not such a death metaphor that they're not making evil choices, they're not pursuing evil actions. They are doing those things. They're, you know, there's, there's not a zombie metaphor per se, but, but both things are there, both that they're actively doing evil and that they're dead. Uh, now, I would, there's an interesting question about this phrase, even when we are dead in sins. The way that it's versified 
it looks like even when we were dead in sins, goes with he quickened us together with Christ. But it, it also connects back to the previous part, for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. And I think that's a better way to understand that phrase, even when we were dead in sins, is that even when we were dead in sins, even when we were walking in all these evil ways, God, who is rich in mercy, loved us and then and, and quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. So I think that this by grace you are saved is going to become a critical, uh, from a Calvinist standpoint, it becomes a critical point of distinction between the, the Calvinist and non-Calvinist views of the text. But uh, I assume that you don't, you're not, you're not saying that's a textual variant that we're throwing out. So I think I want to hear the Calvinists to hear you, you affirm that by grace you are saved, because it's easy for us to say, you know, you're, you're denying that we're saved by grace if you deny the Calvinist point here. Uh, but then, I'm sorry, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I affirm exactly what you said, but by grace we are saved. And, um, you know, faith doesn't save us. Faith isn't, doesn't earn salvation. It doesn't, it's not a sledgehammer where we can knock down the door of heaven. If God doesn't save believers, we would go to hell. Well, I, I, I definitely agree that faith isn't a hammer and so forth. So I don't disagree with what you said there. But what I would say is, in this text, first, the emphasis isn't really, at least not yet, the emphasis is on faith. The emphasis is on God which is how you get these Calvinistic views, this monergistic view, is the picture that's presented here is one where we're dead in sin, but God loves us and has lots of mercy and therefore quickens us together with Christ, raises us up and makes us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it's kind of like all put on God. These are the things God does. And then the, the motivation is at, in verse 7. So that in ages to come, he might show exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Well, let, let, just to, let's, let's put a, a point on this. So the, the deadness. The question in my mind where we might have some disconcurrence is, is the, the point that Paul is bringing out by citing deadness that we're a Lazarus-like dead and need regeneration before we can hear the gospel? Um that's the that I think that's the question. Whereas I see deadness, so, so let's get a full orb view of deadness from for Paul's standpoint. You know, when we're you know the wages of sin is death, right? That's talking about a judgment and his solution for it. He, usually, Paul is the one that brings in judicial language, whereas John will bring in a, well a different sort of. But so for Paul, the solution is a decree of justification, where you're you pass from death to life in that sense and then for john that life is in the son and he that has a son has life he that doesn't have the son has not life but both of those are in christ jesus for both paul and john so that solution for deadness is being a made alive together with christ and just to back up into ephesians 1 because we were just covering it just verse 13 and we're going to get into this a little bit more. Um, uh, but in him, meaning in Jesus, you also, when you heard this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Right? It's 
when, and this is specifically temporal, when you heard the gospel, the, the, the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what, guarantee, that's what guarantees. And we're going to get into that guarantee more, I'm pretty sure, you know, as we move it, uh, forward into this text. Um, but so I guess that's, that's from, from my standpoint, that's what's important is that, that you, the solution to the deadness, if, it, if the deadness were, were, were a requirement for pre-faith regeneration, then the solution... Hey, hold on, hold on. You said if deadness were a requirement? Yeah, if, if, if what Paul is communicating with deadness is that you must be regenerated before you can have faith. If that's what Paul means by saying the word dead, and then the solution wouldn't be in Christ. That's uh, putting the cart before the horse. You would need to be regenerated. I think on Cal the Calvinist order of salvation, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's regeneration, and then there's an effectual call, then there's a faith response, and then you're united to you're justified by faith and united to, by Christ uh, through faith. So the solution can't be before the the problem. It, it, it seems it seems like a logical loop to me. So the the there's a point of distinction that I would make. Maybe two points. One point would be there's a bigger picture of how we're saved. And there's a point that Paul's making here. And I certainly think that whatever point Paul's making here shouldn't contradict something he said somewhere else, because that's the wrong way of interpreting Paul. It's the wrong way of interpreting scripture in general, is finding contradictions. But that doesn't mean that Paul's focus here is on explaining the relationship of faith at so far, relation, the relationship of faith to the deadness or faith to the uh, he heavenly kingdom. Yet, in this section that we've discussed so far, he, I think that Paul's focus is solely on the fact that we are in this dead state, whatever that metaphor is intended to convey. It's, it's that God uh, brings us from death to life. And the way that Paul discusses it here, he discusses it in monergistic terms. Now, it, I, I'm open to the idea that although he explains it in monergistic terms, that, that you know, that's just because he's not yet talked about some other aspect of it, or, you know, that this isn't the whole picture. This is just part of the picture or something like that. But in terms of what this picture is, the way, he, the way it's expressed, we were dead when we were dead. He quickened us, you know, he loved us when we were dead, and he quickened us together with Christ and raised us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So uh, so that in the ages to come, we can get this uh, basically heaven. You know, that's the uh, a short summary, right? So the second part where I think we have a point of distinction is with together with Christ, uh, quickened us together with Christ. This is an interesting point. Uh, I think this ties back to Christ's resurrection, in the sense that uh, we were, were raised with Christ, as we find other places. But the idea is that the metaphor is a metaphor of bodily resurrection, and the idea that that's that bodily resurrection 
in our case, uh, as you know, being dead and being raised to life, that that's a synergistic process is a very odd way to take the metaphor. Well, that doesn't mean that it could be that the metaphor, you know, sometimes people yeah. read too much into a metaphor, but the idea that we're somehow assisting being raised to life, that seems strange, right? That's where, that's where the Lazarus, you know, the, the parallel to Lazarus comes in. Like people are like, are you really saying that Lazarus like kind of had to go along with it and be like, oh, okay, I guess I'll, I guess I'll come back to life. Like pretty much it's obvious that when God raised Lazarus, he raised Lazarus and it was just God working by himself. It's not like Lazarus participated in being raised to life. Uh, that's the picture that's used here in five is, is, is a resurrection to life. Like Christ's resurrection, although the difference is Christ raised himself and the Holy Spirit raised Christ and the Father raised Christ. So all, all, all those things are true. It's not true in our case that we raise ourselves to life. In fact, he says he quickened us, right? And, and raised us up and made us sit in heavenly places. So these are things that God does, and the emphasis here is on God's action, and with, the perp- with the motivation being to show, to give us heaven. Uh, I don't think that the, the, so I'm sorry, so that gets me back to this, what I was trying to say was the second point of distinction, which is this, in Christ Jesus, or in, in uh, or with, the with Christ Jesus, together with Christ Jesus is less clear, but it's a in, in Christ Jesus in verse 6, that I understand that you you may want to think of it in terms of the location, but another way of understanding in uh, in a person can be, uh, in some cases, by the power of the person. So that the uh, so that it's less of a question. So that it's not necessarily the case that. If something, ha- if we are brought to life in Jesus Christ, that that means that we're first united to Jesus Christ as dead, and this dead thing that's united to Jesus Christ is then uh, raised to life, or uh, uh, nor is it necessarily the, the point that Jesus Christ is raised to life when we're first raised to life and then we're united to Jesus Christ, and uh, and I guess the final point would be. In terms of using this term regeneration, uh, I think we have some future guests that may be on the show that will talk a little bit about the the use of that term. But it it has been used in a number of different contexts with a number of different senses. And sometimes it's right, you know, in contemporary conversations, we definitely usually use it in Calvinist circles to describe the work of the spirit in opening the mind, in in a, in turning. Uh, deaf ears to hearing ears, uh, in turning blind eyes to seeing eyes, and and uh, in turning uh, the person who's dead and, and desiring only the desires of the flesh and mind into to having different desires, desires of God. So it the, it does seem that the person needs to have some different desires before they're going to desire God. You can't the desires of the flesh and the mind are only leading the person one way. But the uh, that, I don't think Paul's exactly addressing that in verses four and five, although I think he's going to come to it a little bit later. Like very soon, he's going to come to it. Yeah. So um, just backing up a little bit to what um, you were talking about with uh, the quickening. Um, so the, in our resurrection, and you said that it wasn't a good picture if we have something to do with the, 
the resurrection. And so for starters, just to be clear, I agree with you that we don't raise ourselves to life. You know, that that much is obvious. You know, that that's obviously true. But where I think it's what's important, and perhaps it's because I'm a Baptist and um, you're a Presbyterian, uh, or maybe not. I'm sure you have this well in view. But for Paul, the primary picture of our union with Christ and our participation in his death, burial, and resurrection is the picture of water baptism by immersion, not sprinkling and not a baby's. And um, Hold on a second. So wait, wait, how did we get onto the, the picture of, of <laughs> baptism and by immersion in this text? What is the picture of resurrection in the New Testament? It is like this. I'm sorry, what? It's like this. That's the picture of a resurrection in the New Testament. Ah, we have different New Testaments, probably. <laughs> All right, so anyway, let's... Yeah. Uh, so, okay, now, um, so actually, before we go on too, too far, uh, just backing up to verse 3, I think there's one other detail to cover, and then we can jump right ahead. It says, um, uh, you were, by nature, the children of wrath. Okay, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on this issue, and it is true that the word nature does not necessarily mean from birth. It could be the nature that somebody acquires over time through habit or through use or that sort of thing. So, um, you know, that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be, it could be something that becomes part of your nature when you've learned it or experienced certain things. Your nature can change over time. So that's true. And then the word children, you know, doesn't necessarily have to mean from birth, right? Um, because, you know, people are the child of the devil or something like that. And maybe they weren't that way from their birth. And maybe when they started hardening their hearts and then God judicially hardened them, they became the children of the devil. However, when you put them together like this, there is a very, very strong possibility in my mind that this is actually referring to original sin. Um, because when you have nature and child together, it really does sound like from birth. Now, that can be balanced out because um, it's, it, it says in verse 2 that we walked according to the course of the world. And no one that, I mean, I certainly hold that, you know, yes, there's original sin. Yes, there's an uh, imputed guilt in, in, uh, in and through Adam. But it immediately happens as soon as the person makes moral choices, they make the wrong moral choices, and they're also condemned for their own sins. So I think those things go together, like peanut butter and jelly, but I think there's a very good chance this is referencing original sin. So do you agree? Do you think this, um, by nature, the children of wrath is a reference to original sin? Yes. I think... I. I... It's certainly not the most clear example, but yes. And I, the idea that it's judicial hardening is would be a really, really odd uh, idea since it's referring to people who are now believers. In which case, I mean, what, where's this judicial hardening? You know, what? How hardened are they if they're then subsequently believers? That just that that would strike me as odd. Like if there's a to me at least. If there is such a thing as a judicial hardening as distinct from total depravity or a distinct from original sin, then 
my question, my issue with that would be, uh, so why is it that all of these people, all the saints at Ephesus and Paul, at least, uh, have were in this in word by nature children of wrath? That to me that doesn't make much sense. So I think I think it is better to see this as the the existing state of fallen mankind. But I wouldn't necessarily get all of original sin the doctrine of original sin. And this would seem to be focused more on the concupiscence aspect than on the original guilt aspect, because as you said, it talks about their uh, their actions and their desires that proceed from their, their nature. But the concupiscence that's associated with that, this tendency towards evil, that, that does seem to be mentioned here. Okay. All right. Very good. Um. All right, so we can uh, go ahead and mosey on along. So I guess uh, just reading uh, 4 through 7. Uh, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which uh, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, uh, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, um, and raised up, uh, us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Um, so a couple things uh, jump off the page to me here. Um, God who is rich in mercy, that sounds like the Deuteronomy language, you know, um, that, uh, you know, the, he, he's uh, long-suffering and, and full of mercy and that sort of thing that we, we find uh, all the way back in the Torah. Um, and then, so this great love... I guess one question would be whether it's particular to the elect or um, general to all of mankind. Here it's going to obviously result in salvation, but it, I don't think we can draw like the negative inference that, okay, this love is exclusive to them. But I don't think that that's necessarily Paul's point. Um, it could be that this love is particular elect and it's just special, or it could be that it's just uh, God's general love of all of mankind. Um, and then verse six is interesting. Uh, we are raised up with him, with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I'm actually seated in my chair, um, physically, I'm not seated in heaven at the moment. So that's interesting. And I think it comes down to, um, a guarantee basically that that's what's going to happen in spiritually in some sense, because we're united with Christ. So he's sitting in heaven so therefore we're sitting with heaven this is very a very corporate aspect uh, a, a very corporate concept that we're sitting in heaven right now because our corporate head christ is sitting in heaven um but i i'd also go back to uh, ephesians 1 i think it's uh, verse 14 we um we're sealed with uh, backing up to 13 um, b we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we uh, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I think it's corporately in Christ that we're sitting uh, now in heaven. And then uh, we're also guaranteed that that's what's going to to happen. Um, and then so that in the coming ages, and it's interesting that he puts the word ages, not in plural, <laughs> not, not just age. Huh. Uh, and I don't think we have a full understanding of what that is you know what that what that's about but but it's certainly there it is it's certainly a scriptural concept concept that there are ages coming up um 
self-discipline sensationalism. Yay. Okay. And then uh, that he might show the in, immeasurable richness of his greatness, grace and kindness uh, uh, towards us in Christ Jesus. And you also you mentioned this before. I don't have a necessarily a problem with that the in or n being mostly an instrumental sense in terms of the in the power of Christ Jesus. Um, but I also could very easily take it in a location sense, uh, and not a not, not a physical but a spiritual location sense because he's going to get into the church and our union with Christ and we're a body of Christ and we're all members of the same body and that sort of thing. So I, th I think either one is fine, and it probably wouldn't re result in big, uh, a big difference between us. So I guess with that said, um, any any further thoughts on um, four through seven? Uh, on the ages to come, I do. I found it interesting. I did have a an author I used to read. Uh, I think I've read most of his works. Um, who is a historical premill, not a dispensational premill, but he made a similar point about the ages to come, meaning there's more than one age to come. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, you know there's also some other possible meanings of a plural in that context, which could just be you know the infinity to come type of thing. That that, that would be another possible um, sense when you talk about uh, trying to think of another example, but. But the idea would be in the the and in in the eternity to come, as opposed to being just like you know a short period to come or something like that. But I, I don't know about that point. I, to you know, strongly enough on that the grammatical point to be dogmatic about it, and I tend towards a post mill understanding of eschatology. So there's the millennium and then heaven, at least those two ages, you got to, uh, yeah, you but got to. the millennium is now, uh, not not some future time. So, you know, that's uh, a little bit, uh, it's definitely a different view than the dispensational view. That said, uh, I think we're good. Should we continue to verse? Oh, we you brushed over the, the parenthetical, by grace you are saved. Oh, well, well, how do you fit that into, I mean, maybe it's, we're going to come back to it because he's going to say it in verse 8. So when he does, I'll, I'll, I'll see how you, what you have to say about 8, and then we'll go, maybe go back to 5, where it, he mentions it first. So without grace, we wouldn't be saved. That faith doesn't save us. Grace does. It's 100% grace. Faith does not save. You could believe, and if God didn't save you, you would go to hell. And with everybody else. Okay. Anyways, actually, what? why don't we flip this up? So verse 8 through 10, would you like to take the lead on, on walking through those verses? I'd be happy to, sure. Okay. Uh, so it says, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, and then... Uh, there's some, so that's a natural breaking point in the text. And what I see here is the verse eight is really the reason I wanted to discuss this text because I think this is where the one of the key aspects of Calvinism comes in. What does uh, what does it mean? This is the it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
and and specifically the part that goes before and that not of yourselves uh, the the idea some people have presented the idea not you because you haven't presented any idea yet in our discussion right but uh, some people have presented the idea that it just means that the grace is not of yourselves the faith is of yourselves but that the grace isn't and uh, and that the grace is the gift of God and it's true that grace there's a sense in which grace is a gift of God, but really that's not the way that Paul's explaining this here. He, Paul is not treating grace as a substance or as a thing. Yeah, Paul, Paul is actually explaining that salvation is gracious, that salvation is, is unmerited. That's why he says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He's contrasting of works with with uh, by grace. So, by grace is not uh, not to be understood as by by getting a dose of something called grace, like a little shot of a little vaccination of grace or something like that. That's not the picture he has in mind. The point is that salvation is gracious, that it's unmerited, that it comes from God outside of human merit, and that uh, therefore boasting is left out. And uh, when he says that you're saved through faith, the reason for Paul's clarification about not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, is to focus on the fact that faith, as part of the whole of salvation, is not uh, something that we produce ourselves, but that faith is a gift of God. And uh, that then makes sense of, or makes, fits well with verse 10, where we're his workmanship. Uh, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, uh, that makes sense in that context where even our faith is a gift from God and we are built by him, not we kind of build ourselves and therefore are good enough for him. Obviously, that's not, I'm not trying to suggest you said that. In fact, you know, in your brief comment before about faith not being meritorious, uh, you you treated it as though it's not meritorious. But my point is the, the Paul's comment here is not just that faith is not meritorious, but that faith is not of ourselves. It, faith itself is a gift of God. Now, faith is something that we do, we, we, we believe, and we do good works as well, verse uh, 10 says, but these things come from God. So faith is a gift from God, and... Uh, and that's the fact that it's a gift is uh, is what makes it not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not just that faith is a very easy thing or a very simple thing, and therefore you can't boast because it's like, you know, I've heard people use an analogy like, oh, well, is grabbing a life preserver, is that saving yourself? No, I mean, the, the point in that situation, you'd still say that you were rescued by the person who threw you the life preserver, even if you grabbed the life preserver. But that's not the point Paul's making, is that faith is just a little thing, and therefore we can't attribute much to it. He actually is saying it, it the faith, is the gift of God as part of salvation as a whole, being a gift of God, and uh, that it's not that salvation is not of works, uh, lest anyone should boast. And I guess that you could say, well, I've not, you know, some people say, well, I've never heard anyone boast about uh, their salvation. Or, of course, some people probably, I don't know if people do or not. I mean, you shouldn't boast in general because that's a lack of humility. And almost everyone agrees that a lack of humility is, isn't a, a good work. So you would expect that people who think they're saved by their good works 
so I wouldn't wouldn't boast about it per se, but the uh, but the idea is that salvation is not by the things that we do, and it's still through faith. But even faith is a gift of God. So I guess that's uh, that's kind of the key thing. Now I guess you know I'll, I'll hand it over to you to see your your thoughts. Thing is the, the grammatical point um, that needs to be brought out to, to clarify this text, right? So um, the um, gift is in the neuter form and faith is in the feminine so it's not um the, the point is not that faith is a gift that's not grammatically the point and when you have a neuter in the fe fe feminine like that it refer relates back to the whole phrase right so what is the gift of god um it's in in english you would maybe look at the closest possible antecedent for it right and so that would be faith but that's actually not the way the greek works in the Greek, it's referring back to the whole clause. So what is the gift of God? What is the it? That uh, for by grace you have been saved by faith. Um, that is what is the gift of God. Now, the idea that faith is a part of that package deal, and then it's a gift, um, and then certainly in other places we'll see that faith is a gift, and I have no problem with the idea that faith is a gift. The problem I have is that most gifts are not irresistible. That's just not what a gift is. You, you know, if you're, you know, if you give somebody, if you give somebody a gift, they can reject the gift. They can return the gift. Um, and that, I don't see a re any reason why to think of this gift in, in some type of uh, weird way. And more specifically, when you talk about these gifts of God, you know, let's say, for example, um, a singer with a beautiful singing voice. And I don't have one, by the way. Um, so I don't have that gift of God. But someone that did. Um, well... You know, we, we would usually say that about their ability. Um, we probably wouldn't say it so much about the song itself that they just sang, right? That song was a gift of God. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which it is, uh, for sure. But I think we more cemently attach it to the way God uh, made them and enabled them to sing. And then they're responsible for how they sing or not sing. If they use their voice for... Um, to glorify God or for other uh, for other things, so um, that's my first sense is that is that you know I, I think um, you know gifts are usually rejectable. Um, gifts are usually in the sense of you know divine gifts are usually in the sense of what He's enabled us to do, and um, grammatically it's not even exactly what Paul is saying that faith is a gift. It's it's part of the whole package deal that God saves us by grace through faith. Um, and then one other minor note of uh, historical theology, which I thought was interesting, is that um, for Calvin, it was the exact opposite. I looked at Calvin's commentary on this passage, and he goes out of his way to argue that faith is not the gift of God, um, and that it's uh, salvation or the whole package that's the gift of, of God. And he argues very strenuously for it. And his reasoning is interesting. Um, because his opponents were arguing that faith is a gift of God, but salvation is not. <laughs> and they were Roman Catholic opponents, right? And, uh, and Calvin says, no, 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 look at the grammar. It's not saying that faith is a gift of God. It's saying that salvation is a gift of God. 
Um, so um, what I'm saying isn't, I'm not trying to, you know, pull a fast one on anybody. Um, you know, reformers themselves um, see the same thing in the, in the text. Um, thoughts? So the, the paragraph that you're referring to in Calvin's commentary says this, it says, but it is still more absurd to overlook the, the apostle's inference, lest any man should boast. Some room must always remain for man's boasting, so long as, independently of grace, merits are of any avail. Paul's doctrine is overthrown unless the whole praise is rendered to God alone and to his mercy. And here we must advert to a very common error in the interpretation of this passage. Many persons restrict the word gift to faith alone, but Paul is only repeating, in other words, the former sentiment. His meaning is not that faith is the gift of God, but that salvation is given to us by God, or that we obtain it by the gift of God. Uh, so I... I, I I hope that you didn't hear in my uh, in my statements, and I guess I can play it back later and find out if I said otherwise. But I hope that you didn't hear in my statement anything that said that that faith is the only thing that Paul has in mind when he says it is the gift of God. I think I probably said two or three times that it's part of salvation, as part of salvation. Uh, but I, and I do agree with Calvin's point, which is the way that this is the way that you avoid having anyone to boast is by completely removing man from the picture uh, in the chain of in the chain of dependency here, and that's what that's the part where I think making this some some sort of uh, gift to which something has to be added by us is a is problematic. Well, wait, so do you agree with Calvin when he says, you know, his meaning is not that faith is the gift of God, but that salvation is given to us by God? Do you agree with him? Yeah. Well, then why did you keep saying faith is the gift of God, faith is the gift of God? As part, of, I think I said, I, I, I thought I said in each case, as part of salvation as a whole. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, but maybe I didn't make it clear, but then I'm glad we had this opportunity then to clarify. I'm saying that it's, as part of salvation as a whole, it's a gift of God. So, okay. Uh, does faith save us? So there's many ways of looking, uh, you know, using the word save, right? Sure. Uh, and so if you're looking at it from the standpoint that Paul is explaining here, it, we're saved through faith, right? So that the way that, let me see the, uh, it says, uh, let's just see, you know, dia through, through faith, dia faith. So, you know, that, the, it's very tough sometimes to, to translate prepositions between languages because you know, different languages use prepositions in a little different way. But the uh, the usual translations are of 
daya or by or through or with or for. <laughs> I mean, there's there's lots of there's like a bunch of different ways of translating that same word, and, and it kind of depends on the context. It, it explains it. It has an explanation, and and we can get into self, what what does it mean to be uh, salvation when we talk about salvation by faith. Uh, what what do we mean by that? And it is important to, to understand the difference between the way we mean that, uh, or at least the way that I know that Reformed uh, theologians mean that versus let's say the way the Roman Catholics mean it. So the Roman Catholics will say, oh, you grieve you're saved by faith, but you're also saved by faith and works or something like that. And, and we say the sense in which they're talking about being saved by faith in that sense is being saved um, with with faith being in, in essentially a meritorious role as distinct from being just an instrumental role. Well, hang on. Let me, let me ask, let me, let's clarify that point. So even on a determinist reading, on a compatible determinist, not, not a hard determinist, but a compatible determinist reading, we're responsible for what we do. And on Calvinism, God doesn't believe for us, we believe. So it's something that we do, and we're responsible for it on compatibilism. So it's and we're commanded to do it. Yeah. Right, right. So it seems, it's, it seems that what we need on both sides, both of us, is a clear picture that, that yes, we believe, yes, we're responsible to believe, but believing does not save us. God saves believers. And without that, I think we, we muddy the waters and involve ourselves in, in, into the salvation process too much. Well, here's my, here's my issue with that comment, which is not that I deny that God saves us. My issue with it is there's a sense in which we can talk about faith saving. We talk about such a thing as saving faith sometimes in, you know, in systematic theology. And we talk about it in James, when James is talking. Now, James is not a theologian, per se. He's not a systematic theologian. He's more of a practical theologian. But even he talks about, you know, does that, save, does that faith save you? The implication is that there's another kind of faith that does save you, right? That it's not the faith of demons, that just that there is a God and that he's going to punish, but... It's actually a trust in God that saves. But yes, more properly speaking, it isn't the faith that saves. And you could even say it's not the grace that saves, but it does say by grace you are saved here, right? Grace isn't God himself. Grace is how God, you know, how God treats us. God treats us graciously. So we're saved by grace. That's a true statement. And we're saved through faith. That's also a true statement. But all these things are a gift from God. This faith that even the faith that we have is a gift from God. It's not just that uh, uh, some parts of salvation are God and some parts are man. Everything is from God. That's the that's how human boasting is eliminated, and that doesn't take away from God being the Savior if our, even our faith is a gift from God. So 
I'm just playing Calvinist advocate, right? So let's see. <laughs> Calvinist uh, advocate. Hold yeah. on a second. Sure. I'm the Calvinist here. I, I'm the Calvinist yeah. advocate. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't understand your point. And here's the reason why. On compatibilism. If God predetermined for Adam to fall, Adam is still to blame because he did the eating of the fruit. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to. Absolutely. So he's responsible for what he did, even though it was predetermined. Absolutely, yes. So well, now let's take faith. Mm -hmm. God predetermines somebody to believe. Absolutely, yes. But he doesn't believe for them. They That's believe. That's true, too. They do. And they're responsible for that belief. So I, I don't get how that, in and of itself, solves the, the credit issue. What I think solves the credit issue is that faith, in a very proper and strict sense, saves. And it's not the, it, it, the, the faith does not save. God saves in a very proper and strict sense. Now, I can grant that the language of, you know, your faith uh, has made you whole, that sort of thing happens in discourse, but that's a different sense uh, and idea. But when we're thinking of it as a concept of very properly, who does the saving? It has to be God, and it's not man, not our faith. That's not what saves. And that's the only solution I can see to the, the, the getting rid of the credit from man. Uh, well, it's not the credit of faith that saves us. Right. It's not the credit of faith that saves us. Right. It is God who saves us. It's it's the work of Christ being yeah. accepted by the Father that yeah. saves us. Yeah. So, so and we appropriate that through faith. Right. And that's true, whether it's libertarian or compatible. Either way, well, li libert well, we haven't really come to that issue per se. I mean, there is a difference between us on that point, I guess, but sure. that's not the issue of whether, whether I don't understand how an action of a human is a gift of God if there's no antecedent cause for the action aside from the person themselves. So that to me seems like, a, it seems very hard to attribute everything to God in a libertarian context. And there's a difference between the way that everything's attributed to God in damnation and the way that everything's attributed to God in salvation. So uh, all the people who don't uh, believe, it's not that God... Uh, comes down and, and takes otherwise believing people and removes faith from those people so that they don't, uh, so that they, they lose their faith or something like that. God doesn't just monogistically take away their faith. Although conceptually, that seems like something within God's power. The, uh, although perhaps not in line with his character, but, but it seems like it was something within his power to, to, to act on human beings. But, the, in the case of faith, it's, there's these people who are dead before, and, and God makes them alive. And I suppose that behind that is a question about whether the way that he does, the, the mechanism of how God does that. In other words, in what way is faith a gift? Is faith a gift in the sense of uh, just being 
a gift that by faith, in other words, there seems, maybe I misunderstood what you said, but it seemed like part of what you were saying is maybe other in other parts of scripture, faith is described as a gift. But in here, there's the idea is that salvation by faith is a gift uh, that, God, that God's given us, which I don't think makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think the idea is that all of salvation is a gift of God. So there's no human work in it. But then there's this troubling part about the human faith being at least a little bit of work, but even that's a gift. It's part of the whole picture of, of everything being a gift. It, well, it's also a gift. And therefore, there's no room for human boasting because there's nothing that, uh, there's no part of salvation that's ours. Everything is from God. Uh, but you're right that human beings do believe, right? It's not that God believes, and that there, uh, but human beings believe. And uh, I guess that's the, the conundrum for Calvinism or the puzzle for Calvinism. So, okay, so a couple things. So for starters, um, what I'm worried that is happening, and maybe that's not by you, but by Calvinists in general, is that they've tapping into a very intuitive thing. If something is predetermined, then we're not responsible for it. Faith is predetermined. Therefore, we're not responsible for it. I'm very worried about that. I didn't uh, say we're not responsible for it. I, I, I understand. Yeah. I understand. But but I um, but I but I want to make sure that that point is is crystal clear because I think it just should naturally relocate the issue. Um, okay. Now, in terms of the gift, um, you know, we can understand. I think we do disconcur on what exactly in, in what sense faith is a gift. Um, the, the first and foremost way is, you know, uh, the object of our faith is obviously a gift, the cross and Christ and his work and, the, and that sort of thing. The second sense, of course, is that it's a, an offer of grace, which is a gift. And then the third sense is that the Father has enabled us to believe. So in that sense, it's a gift. Um, and then I'd also go as far as to say that he motivates faith and he brings us to faith unless we resist. Um, I, last time I think we used the, I used the analogy of a dog, right? You know, if, you know, if I run into my, if my house is on fire, I run into my house and pick up my dog, but unless he bites me, um, th then I'm going to save him. But if he bites me, I'll drop him and then he'll burn. I, th I have no problem with thinking of it in the same way. And in that sense, faith is a, is a gift. But where I, I hold the line is that I don't think what Paul means or the scripture means that, that, uh, it's predetermined. I, I don't think it's. I don't think that would be called a gift, and I don't think it would be. Um, it's not what Paul has in mind here. So um, we. And, and if you if you take gift as well, it just has to be predetermined by God. Then we're going to have to just just uh, disconcur on that point. No, I, I don't. I don't see this as necessarily having to do with whether something's predetermined or not. I just. Uh, I have the it. It strikes me as odd to say that to to do this this thing where you say that somehow gifts are not. You know, it's something further. Although God gives you a gift, there's like this additional reception step of the gift pro, gifting process where you could be like, "eh, no thanks." Like I don't see that in the biblical metaphor about God giving gifts of people saying, "and eh, nah, that's okay, I'll, I, I'm okay, I'm good, we're all good here," and like, "don't don't worry about it." Like that is a process. There is a you know in, at least in American gifting today, there is that kind of possibility that somebody could like 
mail you a uh, gift and you could like a package could be on your front doorstep, but you could be like returned to sender. Like, that is something in our experience, but it's not, I don't think it's necessarily part of the biblical picture of gift giving or receiving that some, that people, that gifts are something that are given, but then have to, there has to be this additional reception step in order for the gift to be like, com- like completed or, or something like that. And it's just, just don't see that. And that's, if you if there isn't that reception step, you have Calvinism. So you have to kind of... I'm trying to think of a great example, but I, you know, I, I, if I, I'm sure I could find one if I just searched the word gift. But uh, um, but let's take for example the wedding, you know, banquet at Canaan or something like that, right? I mean, not everyone that was invited came. You know, what do you do with that, right? What do I do with not everybody who is invited to the wedding at Cana? Uh, no, I'm sorry, not the wedding. The wedding banquet, the um, the, the, the parable of the, the wedding banquet, right? Like uh, the invitation uh, goes out to some people and they say, they make up excuses, right? You know, I'm getting married or, I, you know, I'm um, too busy with my business or that, that sort of thing. People start making up excuses and then um, eventually it's, it's given to the, it's, it's said go to the people on the highways and byways and get them to come in. Um, right, but not everyone that received that invitation, which, you know, in some sense was a gift, they didn't deserve that invitation to come to the, the banquet. Um, right? I mean, there is a reception involved. There has to be. Uh, well, I mean, I will, I will say that the, uh, the invitations, uh, the wedding invitation analogy does have a does usually have a reception step to it right and and in the first part of the parable the parable has like three different parts in the first part it does seem to have something some aspect like that the second part of it though <laughs> there's such a diff, there's a brand new picture in the second part he's like just go to the highways whoever you find and it just it says they gathered them together as many as they found in the pictures here like these the servants of this king are, are, were, you know, yes, yeah, he's king. So the servants of this king are just like, hey, you, we're coming to the wedding. And you're like just <laughs> putting it in the back of the cart with the rest of the people. Like it's not, it's, it's yeah. not so much in that case an invitation as like a uh, drawing them to himself, you know, in, in, a, in a very physical sense. Uh, but then there's a, a, a third part, and then there's someone who's somehow made it to the wedding, but doesn't have a wedding garment. And uh, so uh, then that person is bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. So there's, there's, a, uh, there's an interesting three-part aspect to that parable, none of which directly has to do with uh, gifting in the ancient Near East per se, but it, uh, it is an interesting parable in terms of its you know, impact on Calvinism. And then I don't remember if 2214 is the textual variant or is the uh, is the original there? The many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, which, if it if it is, I can't recall whether it's the original or the variant. If it's an original, it's a very maybe it's one of those verses we should at some point consider in our in our talks. Sure. Uh, because you know, from Calvin, when you look at that with Calvinistic eyes, it's like uh, it, it has it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting way to put it. It's not, it's like you would expect 
looking at the first part of that parable, that it would be many are called, but few choose to come, or a few choose, like many are called, but few, uh, few take up the call, or a few listen, or something like that. But the few are chosen. The chosen part seems kind of strange, given the parable. And I don't recall, maybe this is the example of the parallel corruption. I can't remember. There is a, if I recall correct, that many are called, but few are chosen. There is a parallel corruption issue in, in uh, possibly one of the two places isn't original. But anyway. Uh, That's why we have I, the King, King James. Just just go with King James no matter what, regardless. <laughs> who cares what the Greek text says? <laughs> I, I, All right. Joking, uh, joking. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, you know, on that point, I generally go with what the King James says. But if there's a text, like, when I know that there's a parallel issue with this particular phrase, I can't just can't recall where's the parallel, which is the original and which is the potential corruption. But uh, in any event, I, I, I would just, my point is, is more simple, which is the, uh, hmm. my, my point is more simple, which is I don't specifically see this as dealing with a gift, gift per se. And I don't see that uh, the idea of God's gifts as being something that that there's any question about them being received. So I view like healing as a gift. I view resurrection of the dead as a gift, and other these other miraculous power, uh, exercises of God's power as as gifts. And I view salvation as being another as being a spiritual image of those physical uh, realities as well. And I also, and, and in the same way as those, I don't see the gift as being something that where there's a reception stage of the gifting process. It's not like with, you know, with a person is cured of leprosy. It's like, yeah, but do you, you know, here comes the healing, but you have to say, yes, like, yes, I want to be healed. Or, or like, you know, the closest thing would be, you know, the way the, that Roman Catholics interpret the Annunciation, where Mary is told that she's going to have a son, and she's like, let it be as you said. And and Roman Catholics are like, ah, she had to give her permission before this is going to happen, as opposed to just saying she thought found it good and found it uh, right. Gabriel didn't seem to come to her and say, would you like to be Jesus' mom? It's more like, you're going to be Jesus' mom. And then she's like, okay, sounds good. As opposed to like, would you like to be Jesus' mom? Yes, uh, count me in, right? Even in that case, and that's, you know, the gift metaphor is not mentioned there. I mean, he, it's not called, you know, the gift of a child. But even in those cases, it's not, I just can't think of any examples. Maybe I should do a word search on gift and see what comes up. Yeah, okay, so I'll tell you what. I uh, I will also do some research on it. Maybe we can circle back to this one. It's a good question. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, so are there any divine gifts where it's uh, either received or not received or rejected, received in vain, that sort of thing? Um, uh, I think I think there are going to be plenty of, of cases, but but I, but I could be wrong. And I, I, I take research seriously. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to mess it up on the fly and just say the wrong thing. Yeah, I, I would be. Uh... I would be interested to explore that question more, partly because I think, I think at least in the usual case, there's not a reception stage in mind uh, 
when when it's talked about God, the gifts from God, there's the only we'll have to do some more. I'd rather not try to get like do an you know off the cuff word study or something like that. But I, I think it would be interesting to study. I uh, I should pause here and uh, say that if if we want to continue this for significantly longer discussion today, I need to take a break and go do something else and then come right back. Are we close? Are we close to wrapping it up? We can we can wrap it up. Um, okay. So. What, uh, so a quick point on verse 10, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, uh, for good works. Um, th- this creation in Christ Jesus for good works is the is regeneration for sure. It's, it's actually kind of a recreation in Christ Jesus for good works. And that good works don't save us. They're not the reason we're saved, but rather they're the result that we're going to do good works, uh, which God prepared uh, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, is is sort of predestinarian language as it should be, um, and um, we we may even agree on this that, that God has basically predestined that believers perform some amount of good works, not perfectly, um, but they will continue more and more, growing into the image of Christ, and eventually be glorified in heaven. So, um, I think that's. All I had on this passage, um, oh, the should. So the should here, um, that, that we should walk in them. Some people take the should as, you know, that we're required to walk in them. But that doesn't make sense to me. We're required to walk in good works before or after faith. So I take this sense more in terms of um, divine purpose in, in more of a predestinarian sense. So anyways, that's all I had. Yeah, I if we had more time, and maybe we could do this another time, I would love to get into the part at the very end, the 20 through 22, about where the analogy is, we're built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. I think that would be an interesting discussion, maybe just for another time. Okay, yeah, be good. Um, I look forward to it. All right. Okay, thank you very much for a great discussion. Um, God be with you. And with you.